From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. When I go into the Korean supermarket and I see a picture of a model, I'm thinking, you know, who is she? I don't know if she's Korean really or not. She looks like a hybrid European-Asian person. They all look like Barbie, Barbie dolls these days, even in Korea. We have this saying that goes, form follows function, and it's this idea that was first put forth in the early part of the 20th century that the form of a building or an object or anything should directly follow from the function that it was intended for. Like the eraser on the back of your pencil, just waiting there in the perfect spot, ready for action. Or a library or cathedral whose tall ceilings and long windows give you a feeling of awe and inspiration. Formulas of all kind underlay our everyday existence, and the more often a formula is put to use, the more invisible it becomes to us. How often do you think about the social protocols you follow when you meet a new person at a party? Or if you've ever traveled in a country where they drive on the left-hand side of the road, you probably quickly realize that driving rules simply cannot be taken for granted, and that your life depends upon you following them. Formulas can bring us amazing comfort and safety, and when taken to the extreme, that is, when function follows form, then we often get clichés and uncomfortable restrictions. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project on KZSU Stanford, and I'm Bonnie Swift. Today's show is called Form Follows Function, and we've got four stories about the hidden forms and structures that influence the way we think, the way we listen and see, and the way we behave. First, a story from Olivia Puerta, Nelly Olson, and Olivia Prevost about the cultural formulas for beauty in Korea and how they have evolved over time. Second, a documentary by Sarah Risk and Sam Alimehu about a software that uses standard sets of formulas to predict the future of a song. And our third storyteller is a poet who writes in one of the most structured poetic forms possible. Her work is an interesting combination of form and function. Jill McDonough uses iambic pentameter and the sonnet to address one of our secret histories in the United States. And fourth and last but not least, the story of an artist at Stanford who observes patterns and forms in nature and incorporates them directly into her art. Stay tuned. And what about falling in love? The most irrational, unpredictable, unformulaic experience of all, right? But even in the most personal, intimate areas of our lives, we seem to be operating out of deeply seated formulas. And even though we may think we're acting independently, there are many formulas, psychological, biological, and cultural, that help create our notions of good and attractive. And our next story is about just that, beauty standards, and how they change over time. Olivia Puerta, Nelly Olson, and Olivia Prevost tell us about a certain successful surgery industry in modern-day Korea. Imagine that 40% of the films shown at your local movie theater are Korean. Imagine that for their sweet 16th birthday, girls ask for cosmetic surgery to slant their eyes and flatten their noses. In several East Asian countries, the reverse of this situation is reality. 41% of Korea's box office sales come from American films, and across Asia, a common graduation present is surgery to create double-folded eyelids. In this era of globalization, some say that a Caucasian look is dominating female beauty ideals, as Japanese and Korean women can testify. You know, they do lots and lots of plastic surgery. Like, oh yeah, let's go, let's go shopping. Oh, I'll, I'll go buy a new nose or a set of eyes. When I go into the Korean supermarket and I see a picture of a model, I'm thinking, you know, who is she? I don't know if she's Korean really or not. She looks like a hybrid European-Asian person. They all look like Barbie, Barbie dolls these days, even in Korea. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. 
welcome to a night of beauty, talent, and poise. The Miss World Pageant is the world's most watched annual TV show. Of its two billion plus viewers, 60% are young women. The Miss World competition presents the idea that beauty can be judged by one standard. Of all the women in the world, one can be deemed the most beautiful. A Stanford faculty member who wishes to remain anonymous explains what changes beauty standards across the globe. There is no innate beauty in whiteness or uh, big eyes or big breasts. This sense of beauty is not something innate. What is considered to be beautiful has to do with political economy. Dr. Sohee Lee, another Stanford faculty member, teaches and researches the effects of advertising on individuals. Dr. Lee believes the interaction with the West has changed East Asian beauty ideals. Uh, this is the result of any kind of globalization process, right, where you have more and more interaction with other cultures outside of yourself and have a better sense of how other people regard you and how other people regard themselves. Before that, I don't know, we're thinking, what, 18th century, 17th century, they only have themselves and images of other Asian countries to measure themselves by. Their aesthetics will be purely Asian in terms of Asian looks. The East and West have been in contact for hundreds of years. However, political events and economic trends in the last century have increased the West's presence in East Asia. In Japan and Korea, the West's cultural influence was heightened by the United States' involvement in their reconstruction after devastating wars. The Japanese offer of unconditional surrender is official. It has been accepted. In Seoul, Korea, Eisenhower told reporters, We're all engaged in a common enterprise. We are all here to see it through. America, you have to remember, represented the power. Not just one power, but like the sole kind of epitome of what is the great in this world. Um, Koreans were coming out of a war that was just devastating. My, grand, my aunt used to tell me about how people would come around in carts and all the dead people were just piled into it during the war because there's so many people dying in the streets. Old ladies died in their apartments because their son went out to get food and died didn't come back and they starved to death. I mean, all sorts of stories, just horrifying stories of the war. You survive the war and all of a sudden you're a democracy and you're supposed to just pick up and go. And, and, you have, and you're grateful to this country because you have like United States coming in, giving you all this money. But, you know, they were also fed a lot of images of America, Hollywood. You see all these great movies when you can. You see, you know, Elizabeth Taylor and all these great stars. You know, you can't help but find that glamorous, that life glamorous, the people in there are glamorous. Every time you leave me for a minute, it's like goodbye. I like to believe it. I mean, you can't live without me. You know, my mother, God, my, she, she can name off all the... Elizabeth Taylor, she knows all the big stars from the 1950s and 60s. This is what they grew up on. Young Lan Lee, an acclaimed Korean actress and professor of theater and film at Seoul's Kyunghee University, remembers growing up in the 60s and 70s. Well, we were educated in Western ways, you know. Uh, we weren't aware of our own uh, traditional music, our own traditional dance movement. We were taught the Western music, Western dances, and Whenever we had date with them, uh, we, we went out with boys. We rather want to go Western restaurant than the, the Korean restaurant. If somebody brings you to a Korean restaurant, you think, oh, he's you know, a jerk or something like that. <laughs> you know, that kind of culture we were brought up. Venus in blue jeans is the Cinderella. There's a whole emotional attachment there. And I think the Korean people were incredibly grateful at the time and absorbing all this stuff from American you know, cigarettes to American gum to everything was American. I mean, so 
you know, they looked up to America, and this is what they wanted to be. They wanted to be another America. So, you know, it makes sense that people kind of absorb the looks, too, at some level. It was a kind of sudden, uh, abrupt uh, Western culture imported. The notion of beauty, the westernized notion of a woman's beauty, comes with that cultural flow. Western images and products can be seen everywhere in Korea and Japan, as witnessed by young Lan Lee. Kentucky Fried Chicken, McDonald's, and Starbucks, and even um, Outback Steak, and you name it. Now, it looks like Los Angeles and New York, Seoul, streets and Seoul. Western images and advertisements connect Western features with sexiness and wealth. They transform Western looks into what's desirable, what's hot. A Stanford faculty member speaks about this transformation from her experience as a Japanese woman. What is accelerating this is the marketing. There's a marketing force that wants to sell certain products and marketing force really reproduces a particular version of beauty. Dohi, a Korean-American college student who spent three years in Korea during high school, remembers how Westerners were portrayed. Caucasians in advertisements or some TV shows, they're not portrayed as individuals, but rather just, you know, images of beauty. You know, so you have your typical very thin, very blonde, you know, very waif-like figure, you know, holding a cell phone or something, just to give an image of it being cool and Western. Images of Caucasian models are prominent across Asia. In Taiwan, 50% of models in magazine advertisements are white. In Singapore, the percentage is as high as 73. If you see this every day in the supermarket, and you see this kind of look, what are you going to want? What are you going to want to be? Asian women are conditioned to Western beauty ideals through movies and advertisements. But people aren't just passively accepting new looks without reason. Adopting beauty ideals associated with wealth and power can actually get you ahead. The dissolution of old hierarchies in Japan and Korea has enabled people to climb up the social ladder using their physical appearance. Opinion after the war. It's lost its like kind of social system. They used to have a very specific class system. It was a caste system, actually. But after the war, everything got topsy-turvy. All the records disappeared, and people who were of the lower classes could claim higher class rank. And so if you're in that scenario where nobody knows who they are, how do you judge class? How do you judge their social place? And they do it by money and by appearance, and by looks. In recent times, modern technology grants people more power to reshape their looks than ever before. Cosmetic surgery is a distinctly new and permanent way of obtaining the perfect look. In Asia, the popularity of cosmetic surgery has boomed in recent decades. South Korea has the world's highest number of plastic surgeons per capita, performing half a million surgeries per year. Millions of more surgeries are performed in China, India, and other Asian countries. The most common surgeries performed are for wider eyes, longer noses, and larger breasts. The most common, I would say, is getting your eyes done. Most Asian eyes don't have the fold, and so they would want the fold to make their eyes appear bigger. And a lot of people also fix their noses to make it bigger. They also wanted a smoother jawline. They would shave your jawbone here. Um, to make it like round. When it first became like a big thing to do, you know, people would get it. It's like, oh, you know, oh, you got your nose done. Oh, it looks good. And then it became more of, oh yeah, let's go, let's go shopping. Oh, I'll, I'll go buy a new nose or set of eyes. At the plastic surgery clinics, they would say, if you bring a friend, we'll give you a discount or we'll give you another free, you know, plastic surgery session. You know, so it's kind of like two for one deal. In Japan, they call this plastic surgery pro procedure as puchi, uh, plastic surgery. Puchi means petite. Instead of saying it's a surgery, it's a petite surgery, so that it, it, it's, a, it's not even a surgery, it's just stitching. 
like dentist, going to dentist. Cosmetic surgeries entered the market on a wide scale at the same time as the 1980s economic boom in East Asia. Many Korean and Japanese women gained new job opportunities and financial independence through the expanding service industry. In East Asia, women are very aware that looks are important for securing these types of jobs. In Japan, PR departments warn, beware of women who wear glasses or are very short. Cosmetic surgery for the sake of getting a job is so common that the Japanese have coined a term for it, recruit seiki. Young Lan Lee observes the same situation in Korea. If you're not pretty enough, uh, you have to be very um, you know, fit to the standard to get a job or to, to do whatever, even, even politicians, they do cosmetic surgeries and it's kind of normal these days. Although many women are getting jobs, marrying well is still the ultimate goal for most women. You do everything you can to marry up. If you can look really pretty, maybe you get picked up by some rich man. So all these young girls have this pressure to not only you know, get married really quickly, but really look their best. So that's why they get these presents you know, in terms of plastic surgery when they're young, 16 or whatever. So girls, if you don't have much, all you have as capital is your looks. In a social system based on wealth and looks, a woman can use plastic surgery to rise in society as a self-made individual. Such social movement was not possible for women in traditional Asian society, where social status was determined at birth. You know, some people who are against plastic surgery would say, what matters is the inner beauty, not the outside, right? That's just an, another way to see beauty. And why that is more ethically or morally superior idea than people who say, well, I mean, what's, the, what's wrong with changing my appearance so that I can get better salary? You know, it, this is one of the few things maybe I can change. Yes, my, my economic background, class background cannot be changed. This is where I was born. I can't change it. So there are a few things I can change. And if appearance is something that I can change to have a better life chance, then why shouldn't I? Shaping oneself to meet a beauty standard can open up a new world of opportunities. Ironically, in order to take advantage of new freedom and social mobility, women surrender to a strict ideal of physical beauty. Some are concerned that this new beauty ideal reflects Western characteristics, threatening East Asian culture and the celebration of individual differences. It's very problematic because it induces people to do things that they don't normally do. I mean, it's a problem here where people are closer phenotypically to at least the ideal in terms of Western features. I think natural beauty is the most beautiful. So when I went to Asia, I think Asian girls are beautiful the way they are, and I thought it was so sad for them to want to change their natural beauty to become like something that they will never be. The standard of beauty it should be very personal, very, it should be very cultural, it should be very even ethnic, you know. You should enjoy the differences, even outlook, even you know, face, facial differences. I don't agree with uh, everybody has to look the same. Cosmetic surgeries can give women advantages for better jobs, but many women still complain that people shouldn't feel that they have to get surgery in order to be beautiful. They believe that beauty is something unique and natural. The role of beauty standards in people's lives is paradoxical. A beauty standard can be a tool for exerting individuality, triumphing over old constraints, and gaining higher status in society. But that newfound freedom can be traced back to following a narrowly defined norm. Beginning in the 1970s, college students and others who were inspired by these concerns worked to revive interest in traditional Korean culture. 
Young Lan Lee has been active in establishing an anti-Miss Korea festival that celebrates a broad definition of beauty. The audition for people, just ordinary people, everybody, every woman can be beautiful, every, every woman can be anti-Miss Korea. So first year of our anti-Miss Korea festival, 70-year-old grandma and 80-year-old grandma, Oh, they can the fat one and you know big one and with harsh voices, even uh, homosexual. Yeah. Everybody can make their own voices. In this kind of uh, period, when the internet, it, you know, connects you timely and space-wise, instantly, the cultural aspects has to have to maintain their own idiosyncratic cultural identities. That ways the universe would look like rainbow. Otherwise, it's going to look just monotoned uh, prison. Yeah, in culture, you have to be different. You know, woman's beauty is a representative of culture, I think. They're losing their identity. I think it'd be too easy to say that. Some East Asians vehemently deny that the prevalence of eyelid surgeries has anything to do with Western cultural imperialism. A leading Japanese plastic surgeon stated in Asia Week magazine that although eye surgeries performed right after World War II were meant to make people look more Western, that is no longer the case. Scholars such as Joseph Taubin argue that Japan isn't being westernized, but is domesticating Western influences, adapting and naturalizing them until they're a part of being Japanese. Others object to the idea that globalization produces a homogenous norm. I'm not sure if globalization is hom homogenization because people, they want to see something exotic something very different from the place that they live. So precisely the opposite to homogenization. Another movement is this increasing sort of commodification of cultures, making everything different from each other. Otherwise, you can make money. Not necessarily everything is going to be universally same. Difference, I mean, you have to have, you know, you have to consume difference, you don't consume the sameness. Maybe globalization won't make cultural ideals all the same. Rather, nations might consume other nations' differences, differences that will be melded and changed until they're no longer foreign. Who knows how America's beauty ideals could change as a result? Maybe if Asia, an Asian country took over our country and won, and you know, we can't even imagine what that would be, you know, if we were in war with like China or something, and I don't know how we would respond to that, and over time, how that would change us and how change our, our perspective. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and we all want to look Asian. <laughs> There's no certainty that American ideals will continue to dominate Asian or global standards of beauty in the future. And there's no certainty over how globalization is really affecting how people think about beauty. Is globalization causing a tragic loss of diversity? Or is there a conscious two-way exchange of cultural differences? As nations across the world develop and global interactions increase, it's inevitable that the U.S. will feel the influence of foreign beauty ideals. Those foreign ideals could become part of Americans' paths to greater power and wealth. Like it or not, societies everywhere place a lot of importance on how people look. Some people may object to the importance that other people place on physical beauty, preferring our fates to rely on intelligence, rank, or virtue. But when it comes down to it, judging by those standards can be just as arbitrary and subjective as judging beauty. Maybe it's all about your smarts. Maybe it's all about your looks about your big eyes, your blonde hair, your dark skin, or maybe, just maybe, the hokey pokey is what it's all about. I got you one moment, honey, no, one moment, pocket, big old.
Olivia Puerta, Nelly Olson, and Olivia Prevost are undergraduates at Stanford. Next up, Sarah Risk and Sam Alameyahu visit a website who claims to accurately predict the future. Sound crazy? Keep listening. Picture this, a phenomenal garage band is trying to make it in the music industry. They pound on record companies' doors, run after record executives they see at concerts, but are always turned away without so much as a smile. Why? Because a software that can supposedly predict massive hits doesn't give them a good rating. Too far-fetched, do you think? The software already exists, and out of the top songs on the charts right now, one and four have already been run through it. I first found out about the software when a friend of mine showed me the website hitsongscience.com where you can submit mp3s and they rate your song for hit potential. It sounded cool at first, but soon I began to worry. In the novel 1984, George Orwell made the ominous prediction that popular music would be computer-generated, devoid of human input. I feared that this software was taking society one step closer to the dystopia Orwell foresaw. I feared that the freedom and creativity that have for so long been a hallmark of the music industry would disappear. I wondered if the future of the music industry would be dependent on formulas rather than art. I feared that the human ear would become obsolete, replaced by the silicon chips that comprise a computer's insensate brain. I would have to say I find it to be a little bit scary. They almost can't predict something that's very human. I think of music as more of a feeling than anything else, and that's why this model is a bit difficult for me to accept as a standard. With these fears echoing in my head, I set out to find out about this software and to discover how bad it really is and what this means for the music industry. I was skeptical that the software even worked, but was fearful of what it meant if it did. Software rates songs on a 1 to 10 logarithmic scale, with anything above a 7 qualifying as a hit. And the company boasts an 80% success rate, four times that of top music professionals. Could this really be true? I wanted to try it out, even though I realized that there was really no way for me to definitively evaluate it. Still, by talking to the artists before and after their evaluation, I could gauge how the rating system would affect the morale of an artist. I approached my friend who had originally shown me the website. Koji Gardner, sophomore at Stanford University, plays the guitar and had been part of a high school band that really played music for the sake of playing music. Being able to play, first of all, stuff I hear on the radio was very satisfying. And then once I got a little bit better and more technical, writing my own songs and putting them to a beat with drums and stuff is just a really cool feeling. His drummer, Ian Burrell, who is currently a junior at the University of Georgia, agrees that he and Koji really play for the pure fun of it. For me, it's the most fun I have, just uh, uh, jamming just with uh, the guitar and the drums. and it's just, it's just the most fun thing in the world for me. I asked them if they'd be interested in running a song on the software, 
and they gave me one of their favorites, a song called Unconscious. it be a hit? We'll see what hit song science has to say. In the meantime, I wanted to know how the rating system would affect Koji and Ian. It's not going to make us change the way we play. It's not going to change the music or um, the type of songs we play. I think uh, uh, whatever it says, I think it'll just affect us for like maybe, maybe the next hour that we think about it. So, and then after that, we'll just go back to just doing what we want to do. So maybe artists that just play for fun won't pay very much attention to the software because fundamentally they don't care very much if they have a hit or not. But what about artists that want to make it big? I wondered how they would feel about the software and how the hit song science report might affect them differently. So I contacted Jadena, a junior at Stanford who's an up-and-coming rap artist. Here's how he introduces himself. So, once upon a time in a, in a strawhead city where, where the bras never kept bra straps on their titties, there's one little boy who went by the name of Chief because his, his father was the chief. And his name would be the same name as me, Jadena. I knew that Jadenum wanted to become a big-time player in the rap industry, but I wanted to know what really drives him. I feel like if I wasn't doing music, I would have no other purpose. I believe that my music is needed uh, for the world, so it's really just somehow this extra force that keeps me up all night producing. Um, a lot of a lot of my environment, it's like a lot of my environment that I'm around, it, it causes me uh, to have a passion to make change. And I believe the greatest way to make change right now is to be a hip-hop. Jadena was also open to submitting a song to the website and chose a personal favorite, In the Bottle. Can you imagine this one on the radio? I asked him how a good score would affect him. It definitely would give me more more strength to continue making uh, music and also to continue making music. I would listen to it and pay attention to it and try to mimic the song. And a poor score? I would probably not listen to it. <laughs> I love, like I said, I love my music. So, um, and I'm also stubborn. And I think a lot of musicians are. And I would just, I would just, uh, I would just keep going and making music. And I, I would still make a song that would sound like the song I submitted, since the song I submitted I like. Oh, too busy for commitment, so I'm pimping them just like Clinton. I'm swift man, a hit man in three ways: hit jams, hit dames, hit lames. I don't like piss me off, my piss on you. I drank too much, what you gonna do? I'm living in a bottle. So for spare time enjoyment or in search of fame and fortune, they've written their song, recorded it, and are ready to share it with the world. But will it be a hit? Well, the hit song science way, you could know with the click of a mouse. But what sort of mathematical and scientific experiment will the songs go through? Because we can break down a song into its component. Mike McCready, CEO of Polyphonic HMI, the company that produces hit song science, explains. Can analyze a, 
a song for melody, harmony, beat, tempo, rhythm, octave, pitch, chord progression, fullness of sound, sonic brilliance. There are about 30 different variables that we look So when you, if you have every song represented by a tiny white dot on a piece of black paper, for example, you would end up having something that looks like the Milky Way galaxy. Pretty weird, I thought. And if all the songs ever created are in this galaxy of music, where are the hits? I pressed McCready for the answer. When you remove, when you go back and then remove all of the songs that have not been in the uh, top 30 over the past five years, you end up with uh, what look like a bunch of clusters all over that universe with all of these spaces between them. So when we analyze um, new music, we simply look to see if the new songs fall inside those already pre-established clusters or if they fall outside into the open spaces of the universe. And uh, that's a kind of a visual way that we, that we can see um, if a song has hit potential or not. McCready told me that songs in any given cluster were mathematically similar, but might not sound anything alike. For example, the song If I Can't by rapper 50 Cent is in the same cluster as There's No Getting Over Me by country artist Ronnie Millsap. Here's the 50 Cent. Now listen to Ronnie Millsap. Well, you can walk out on me tonight If you think that it ain't feeling right But darling I wondered what the limitations of the software were. McCready. Our software can never tell you if a song sounds like a hit. Uh, that's that's, an, that's a human evaluation. Our technology has no common sense. It can find mathematical hit potential in a six-minute long instrumental played on the accordion. I mean, and your common sense has to tell you that that kind of a song is never going to be successful in the market as a hit single. Now that I knew a little bit about the software and what it does, I looked up the evaluations of the artists we talked to earlier. Here's the song that Koji and Ian submitted. to 6.42, which doesn't cut it as far as hit song science is concerned, but is still closer to a 7, the threshold for a hit, than the artists were expecting. Originally, Koji and Ian had been skeptical about the software, and I wondered if this score would change their thoughts about it. Ian Burrell. I don't think we'll think about this rating at all when we come up with new songs, I think. Uh, We'll just play what sounds good to us and what and uh, just do what we have fun doing, and I, I hope it stays that way. But speaking to them, it was clear that all this talk about hits had changed their thinking about their music. Koji Gardner. Maybe to try to write more songs like this rather than what we were doing in the past, which was sort of just stuff we thought that sounded good and you know, maybe a little bit technical and stuff, but not necessarily songs that we felt were really catchy. Just the fact that it feels good to write music for ourselves, but also if other people like it too, you know, just friends and family even. If it's a catchy song, then they'll like it more too. So I feel writing more songs in this style, if this really is a style, um, yeah, so maybe that'll affect the way we do things. For Koji and Ian, having their song run didn't change their skeptical attitude towards the software, but it did seem to change their priorities as musicians. They now seemed more focused on how others perceive their music. For Jadena, his song, In the Bottle. 
Well, it ranked very high with a score of 6.93. And not only that, but the software indicates that if it were to be released right now, it would have a staggering hit potential of 8.35. According to Hit Song Science, a definite hit. Listen carefully. You might be hearing this on the radio soon. So how will this affect his career? I'll take him to either a record label or a manager or something um, as a I guess scientific proof to the faith that is behind my music um, just because it's good music like I said and the people need that right now. For artists that want to make it big in the industry, this software seems to have a profound effect on them, at least in this case. And Jadena is certainly optimistic about how this score will help him reach more people. Will it work? We'll keep you posted. I had feared that musicians would be somehow corrupted by this technology, but this didn't seem to be the case. Neither of the artists I spoke to wanted to write music for the score, but instead remained enthusiastic about their style throughout the process. Musicians, it seems, will always stay true to artistic creativity. I wondered how the software would affect the music industry at large. Hit song science, as like any tool, can be used for good or bad. And you know, you can use this technology to make homogenous, formulaic-sounding, cookie-cutter music. Um, there's no denying that you can that you, you can do that. But you can also use the technology to push the envelope of creativity and to take sonic risks in the studio. But we can show the producer and the label and the artist that uh, actually what they're doing does conform to these particular mathematical patterns that are going to find acceptance in the market uh, in this way or this other way. Um, and we can help music labels discover artists that um, they wouldn't normally want to sign because they would be perceived as too risky. Maybe he has a point, and maybe it'll just be another gadget at the producer's disposal, not the beginning of a silicon complex that will replace humans. Humans have been using computers for a long time to evaluate many different things, and applying it to music may not be as bad as I originally thought. To discuss the topic, I've made an appointment with Eleanor Selfridge-Field, a consulting professor of music and symbolic systems at Stanford University. Certainly, there's still uh, people trained in uh, conventional music subjects who have a great many reservations about computers. But in fact, in music, an awful lot of people are, are using computers for different things. I think there are a lot of good things coming out of this. What did you say? I know I saw you singing, but my Long enough to hear those sweet words. What did you say? As I think back on all the research I've done, what seems most apparent to me is how much of an impact hit prediction software is going to have on the music industry. Already, the product is filtering over 25% of the music that makes it to the top charts. Nora Jones and Maroon 5 are both examples of artists who were deemed hits by the software long before they became household names. And others are starting to make prediction software. A small group at Hewlett Packard emulated the software, and someone else in the media labs at MIT recently announced a hit prediction software. McCready says that he imagines in a few years he will be selling the product to a large-scale company like Microsoft, Universal, AOL, or Google. See my love like a lost balloon. 
want to know what I think? I think this software has the potential to bring us music fans more interesting and more appealing music. Software like this could open up the music industry to unique artists who sound great but appear too risky. And as long as musicians, not computers, are the ones who are creating the music, I don't think we really need to worry about losing the soul of music. Maybe it's too early to tell, but in my opinion, it would be rash to dismiss this software as an evil of technology. Sam Alamehu and Sarah Risk are both undergraduates at Stanford. Another place that we often look for structure is in poetic form. So we searched high and low and found a local Stegner fellow here at Stanford who's just written a collection of sonnets. Jill McDonough's most recent book commemorates some of the 20,000 people who have just been legally killed under the death penalty throughout the, U the history of the United States. In a way, Jill's careful use of iambic pentameter and seems as natural as everyday speech. This is one titled Margaret Gallagher. June 4th, 1715. Margaret Gallagher, Boston, Massachusetts. The news that week includes a lioness displayed attacking fowls and cats. They watched her feeding time, remarked on her merciless cruelty. Meanwhile, Cotton Mather preached against hard-hearted sinners, hardness of heart. He helped with her confession, which reflects on attempts to destroy her unborn child, a part of her wicked crime, completed through neglect. Now hers is a stony heart of flint. Ah, Mormit, behold, the congregation calls for your wondrous industry, agony, your death four days off. Pray for a clean and a soft heart. Don't fall from this fresh gallows to the mouths of dragons, unconcerned, adamant, so little broken. producers Lee Constantino had the chance to meet with Joe McDonough in San Francisco this past weekend and asked her a little bit about her soon-to-be-released book, Habeas Corpus. The sonnet for me is like the, if, if you're thinking about poetic form, like that's the go-to form. That's really the, the er form of English poetry. So I wanted to do something for these people that was more formal than free verse or prose. Um, I wanted to honor them with something that was, you know, lots of times they didn't get a eulogy, they didn't get a gravestone. So I wanted to give them something. Um, and I wanted to, I thought the sonnet was a way of drawing them back into a literary tradition or a culture um, that we we kicked them out, and now I wanted to bring them bring not all of them. We we've executed about twenty thousand people um, since colonial, like that recorded legal executions in America. So choosing a representative number and bringing them together and honoring them with a with the poetic form, and I, I that's one of the reasons I chose a sonnet. Also, it's it's a love poem. Like people think of a sonnet as being a love poem, um, and that helped me stay empathetic when I was writing about some pretty horrible people. Jill also said that staying within the confines of a poetic form like the sonnet really enhanced her experience as a writer. 
when I think that a lot of people, when they think of iambic pentameter, then they um, want to just hide under their covers and die. Like iambic pentameter is not a, a phrase that we want to hear after about ninth grade yeah. um, when we are forced to understand mm-hmm. what it is. But I, I think it's like, like I said about being part of a tradition, I, I think um, the form, um, the form accomplishes a lot and the form makes um, it uh, uh, focuses the attention uh, and it renders more powerful and more condensed um, what could be kind of sloppy is in, in prose. pretty intimate with the sonnet. <laughs> I spent a lot of time writing sonnets and reading sonnets and thinking about sonnets. Um, it was it was very difficult to have a line that was more than, um, was longer than a line of iambic pentameter after I finished with this project. Like once I wanted to write free verse again, it was hard to let loose in those ways and have like big sloppy lines and discursive asides. And But you know, that's a, a satisfying and um, completely legitimate way to go so i i wanted to i maybe it's like a a runner who who like is doing 50 yard sprints for five years and then is like i think i'm gonna try a marathon like i'm gonna try cross country i'm gonna try i don't know riding my bicycle like doing doing something else so it was it was a terrific workout for for me as a writer um and i i think i have a lot more admiration for people who who writes on it? And I'm more excited about like being able to, it's like um, any skill that you develop. Like if you're if you're a carpenter, then you have better appreciation for architecture. So f- being on the inside of a sonnet for that long, trying to figure out how to make it accomplish the larger goals that I had, um, was that's something that I'm really happy that I I gained from that part of the project. Jill McDonough is a Stegner Fellow here at Stanford. And as to where Jill's poetry stays within the bounds of a man-made formula, our next documentary is about a form of art that mediates and the formulas in nature. Storytelling producer and engineer Noah Burbank spoke with Jen Carlisle about her music. As a special treat, I present to you a beautiful piece by Jen Carlisle called Rethinking the Weather. For this piece, Jen wrote functions in a programming language Lisp that model the forms of clouds and convert them into music. I recently sat down with Jen for tapas and drinks at a local Spanish tavern. If you're anything like me, you probably find a lot of modern experimental music inaccessible, and so, after discussing weather, not just the weather, Jen talks about how to enjoy modern music. So first we talk about the process of creating her piece, and then she walks us through it. So prepare yourself to understand a sophisticated modern composition. All background music is from Jen's extensive collection of field recordings, which you'll find both in her piece, Rethinking the Weather, and all over this interview. How would you advise somebody to try and access this kind of music? Where, where, where does one start? Well, I think that one of the reasons that people have a hard time accessing this type of music is they think that there's one right way to interpret it. And, you know, if it was composed by a PhD student, then it's probably a very high level, very brainy interpretation that is the correct one. But really, at least I think that the best way to interpret a piece of music is just um, listen to it and see how you react to it, taking your own experiences. And, you know, does it speak to you? Do you recognize parts, um, you know, sounds? Do you recognize rhythms? Like, uh, you just need to make it a very personal experience. And whether or not your interpretation is the same interpretation as the composer's, um, you know, that, that really is besides the, you know, beside the point. Why do you call it rethinking the weather? Um, what is being rethought? Um, well, the title, Rethinking the Weather, um, I borrowed from Daedalus, who is one of my... Uh, one of my favorite electronic musicians and um, you just have these moments where you're like of course that's the title you don't have to put a whole lot of thought into it it just seems right that was sort of the process with with rethinking the weather 
when I was a graduate student, I had a lot of time for, for thought, um, you know, creative thought. I would spend a lot of time, um, you know, laying on my back in the grass and looking up at the sky, and, or at the beach on the sand looking up at the sky. And um, So I guess it's something that, it's, that you encounter pretty much every day, and it's... Um, uh, I don't know, the thing about weather is there are all sorts of things. There's like the temperature, there's the pressure, um, there's the wind, and there's the clouds, and you know many other things. Temperature you can feel kind of, you, know, you can tell when it's hot and it's when it's cold. You, there's, there's no um, visual representation. Like pressure, you can feel when your ears pop, but again, no visual representation. Um, clouds there really is a visual you know they they are visual it's a visual phenomenon so it's kind of a um, one of the few ways you know visual ways we have of interacting with the weather so why did you choose the most visual way of interacting with the weather and turn it into sound <laughs> good question <laughs> i think i was sitting in the car driving to get some takeout dinner with one of my classmates and um very philosophical and brought up the point that um, you know granular synthesis is reminiscent of um, you know all of the particles in the atmosphere that are used to uh, or that make a really beautiful sunset. Granular synthesis is a way of um, creating sound where you take very short snippets of like a you know an actual sound like a like the sound of a bell or the sound of a frog ribbiting and you take um, a section that's, you know, 10 milliseconds, and then you repeat that um, section of sound, you know, over and over again, and it becomes um, more like a texture. Or, um, you, you no longer hear it as a, as a frog ribbiting. You hear it as um, like a bzzz. It sounds very electronic, even though it comes from often an environmental source. What parts are in the composition? Computer-based clouds that use a synthesized piano, uh, and we write func or I write functions that control um, the frequency of the cloud, or the kind of the central frequency of the cloud, and also um, the temporal space, and also the physical space. Like whether, say, if it's coming from two speakers, you can manipulate the levels coming from each speaker so that it will seem, you know, either in exactly in the middle of the two speakers or closer to one speaker or closer to the other. Where are the ambient sounds from? A lot of noises. Mm -hmm. um, the ambient sounds I used in the piece are uh, all field recordings I made from my window in my apartment when I lived in Sweden. Um, I lived there during the summer months, it was like um, May and June, and there were these fantastic, huge thunderstorms every night um, at about 10 or 11 p.m. Just, the sky would open up and it would be a huge rain shower, thunder, lightning, the whole works, and then it would just stop after about 15 minutes. And I really grew to love these thunderstorms. Uh, but these particular recordings, I was I was at home, and my roommate had this loud kind of piano music going on in the background, and it was um, and it was spaced. It it it, it was working exactly with the uh, thunderstorm. <laughs> like there would be a crash in the music, and then there would be a crash in the thunder. Um, and it was just this serendipitous moment where everything just came together. And now for Jen's piece, Rethinking the Weather. So we're starting, we have an alto stratus cloud, it's sort of, you know, sparse in time. You now we have their first fair weather cumulus coming in. Here that the notes are very tightly spaced in time and they also are fairly tightly spaced in frequency. Have another fair weather cumulus coming in. Now we have a cumulus congestus that came through. That's a that's a precipitating cloud. It has an ominous sound. Now we've gotten into the alto cumulus crowds. 
which are kind of a cross between a, an alto stratus and a cumulus, where they have a more compact feeling to them, where they, the, the notes are more um, tightly spaced in time. So now we're getting into a um, nimbostratus cloud, which is a uh, precipitating cloud. Once again, with the ominous feel. Has very wide frequency range. Very, very high notes and very low notes. First field recording, which is a recording of the of the rain from my apartment window. And so the piano that you hear now is a mixture of the synthesized piano and the piano from um, the actual field recording that was my roommate was playing. like there's thunder and kind of a buildup in emotion, a very loud thunderclap. This is a, a, um, this is a field recording. Thunder is dying down, but it's still raining. have a fairly compact cloud, you know, many piano notes. The piano is stopped, so the clouds are parting, yet it's still raining. A siren in the background. This is a field recording for a lot of accidents during the uh, the thunderstorms. They were they were terrible storms. A loud thunderclap. This is what I would hear every day in Sweden. of the piece. Now we're getting into a, uh, one of the field recordings, one of the serendipitously beautiful field recordings where the thunder would happen and then the music in the background just went along with it amazingly well. So we're hearing more piano notes now, and this is an alto stratus cloud where it's sort of sparsely spaced in, in time, and it's also kind of all over the frequency map. So this is sort of a large sparse cloud. Back to just a field recording. Just a light rain. Rain's getting heavier. As you can tell, it sounds like fireworks almost. The thunder. Now we're, we have a nimbostratus cloud, which is a precipitating cloud. part of the piece where it actually has the sound of the rain and the, the, the synthesized cloud is a really nice part of the piece. And then we're getting to the end where we end with a cumulocongestus cloud, which is you know, sparse in time, but also has sections that are um, you know, more compact both in time and in frequency. Jen Carlisle is a former graduate student at CCRMA. Today's program was produced by Jonah Wheelingans, Noah Burbank, and myself, Bonnie Swift. And Micah Craddy is engineering this show. Thanks, Micah. 
Thanks to Olivia Puerta, Nelly Olson, Olivia Prevost, Sarah Risk, and Sam Alameyehu for their audio essays, and to Jill McDonough for her poetry, and also to Jen Carlisle for her cloud music. Original music for the show was arranged and performed by um, Pali Vaccini, Talisman, and the Yeltsin Collective, all of whose music can be downloaded free on Stanford iTunes. And for the generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would also like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. And remember that you can find a podcast and this of this and every lovely episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. The Storytelling Project is going to take a little bit of a spring break, but we'll be back next quarter with more stories from the farm. For the Stanford Storytelling Project and KZSU Stanford, I'm Bonnie Swift. Thanks for listening. <laughs>